0: Welcome into TYT's The Conversation, it's your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I am joined by Will Bunch, national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, as well as the author of a new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. Thank you so much for joining us, Will.
1: Thanks, Adrian. it's great to be here.
0: Yes. So, Kirkus Reviews gave your book "After the Ivory Tower Falls" a star, describing it as a must-read for anyone who cares about education and societal reform. If you want to give us a taste, what's the book about?
1: Yeah. Well, I do. I do think this is kind of a secret history of our of a, a, just an important story of our politics over the last seventy five years that really tries to explain the great divide in American politics. Um, in a, in a way that I don't think anybody else has before. Because if you look at what the fault line in American politics is right now, it's it's college, it's higher education. Um, uh, every election cycle, more and more you see the Democratic Party becoming the party of college educated uh, people and you see the Republican Party becoming the party of a working class that generally doesn't have college diplomas and you see more and more cultural cultural resentment between these two groups. And I think I think political writers are just kind of trying, are starting to get their arms around this development. And uh, I, I, I spent a couple of years trying to get behind it. And I think you can't explain the college divide in American politics, unless you explain the American way of college. You know, what's gone wrong? And this great debate that we've been having for three quarters of a century about what is what is college really for, and, and just as importantly, who pays for it?
0: Absolutely, and it seems that uh, having this divide about college and the importance of it definitely seems to be drawn somewhat along political lines, uh, as well as possibly financial. And we're seeing a lot of voices being used right now when it comes to President Joe Biden's efforts to go ahead and um, you know waive the debt of some college students or some individuals who graduated from college. And it does seem like along the political lines, uh, the response we're getting whether that's a yay or a nay. Uh, have, in all of your research, I guess, does this actually play out exactly how you
1: would have thought it would have been? Yeah, it, it has pretty much. You know, I think President Biden's decision kind of opened the floodgate floodgates and that if you spent you know, anytime on social media in the in the two or three or four days after um, the uh, debt cancellation was announced by President Biden, you know, I, I think you saw you saw a lot of emotion. You, you know, you saw some people on the right really giving voice to this resentment politics. You know, that this idea that um, you know certain certain people got opportunities uh, that that not everybody had. Uh, that uh, you know that that their education sent them in directions that, you know, they consider un-American because, you know, this embrace, embracing of tolerance and diversity and, and, uh, you know, uh, political correctness, as, as they would, as they would describe it. You know, on the other hand, you saw just great joy from people who, you know, were the holders of this incredible 1.75. Trillion dollar mountain of debt, you know, most of which has accumulated just in the last 25 years. And you know, we we have we have a couple of generations, you know, mainly millennials and, and Generation Z now. Um, these are our children, and that you know, and they, and they were sold a bill of goods. Um, you know, they were they they were made promises about the value of a college education, uh, and uh, you know, that college the college loan racket was was a good investment they were promised and and it hasn't turned out that way at all. And I think I think you saw some of that anger as well, but you also saw relief that the government finally, for after years, you know, and after much activism really acknowledged that this is a problem.
0: Yes, and it definitely seems to be a problem, especially uh, really this complete and total commercialization of the education system as opposed to you know having some opportunity for people to, uh, to better themselves and to enhance their knowledge so that they can be more productive members of society. But also something I would love to tackle with you, um, given your book after the ivory tower falls and its discussion about our college system is right now that we know that basically a lot of people aren't going to college. That we're seeing just this historic decline in attendance and admission levels at the college level as well as the graduate school level. And that's something that kind of started before the pandemic to my knowledge. How would that fit in in terms of the research that you found?
1: Well, well, people are understandably now taking a serious look at uh, you know whether college, as we've come to construct it, is worth it. You know, is worth the tuition, which you know, it, certainly. You know, we talk a lot about the sliver of private elite schools that charge seventy-five to eighty thousand dollars a year, which is remarkable. But uh, you know, really, where the rubber hits the road is is our public universities, which, if you go back to a period that in the book I kind of describe as the golden age of college education in America, when when college really was the American dream, and I'm talking about you know the 1940s after the GI Bill, going in into the 50s, the 60s, the early 70s, that the years of the baby boom. Uh, you know, in those years. Tuition was just unbelievably low by our standards. You know, a few, a, a few hundred dollars a semester in most states, and some states like California and or New York City at, at the CUNY system, uh, tuition was free in those days. And, um, you know, basic, basically, basically a profound change happened in America, and it happened without really us having the proper debate that it deserved. And that is. You know, we we almost during this golden age made college a public good. You know, the idea that you know it was society's responsibility to provide our young people with this education. You know, we do it we do it with K through 12 schooling. Uh, you know, higher education is now essential in today's world, and yet we don't. You know, we were almost there with higher education, and then in the 70s and 80s, uh, particularly during you know the Ronald Reagan. Administration in the 80s, you saw the privatization of college really take off. You saw tuition start to skyrocket. You saw the government's philosophy that loans should be the primary way of funding education. You know that this was kind of a a capitalist uh, uh, you know ideal that. You know that you're you're investing in yourself and you're taking out a loan against yourself basically and you know it's a good investment you're going to be able to pay it back and, and of course that 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 hasn't happened for a number of reasons you know it didn't it didn't happen to the millions who went to these scammy for-profit colleges um, and it's it you know it didn't happen to people who graduated into the great recession and and couldn't find work that was commensurate with their degrees and um, it created a system where People had debts that they were that they were unable to pay back.
0: Yes, uh, and so many of us know very much that journey that you just laid out. I'm a graduate of a Cal State public school, as well yeah. as a CUNY for my grad, and then two private schools. Like it's it's a complete and total um, just day and night when it comes to tuition. And still looking at where the uh, state schools are at in terms of tuition, it's still. It, it's it's crazy as far as I'm concerned and seeing this political divide push it even further where people are no longer investing in education. And knowing what that'll do to the number of licensed professionals we need in certain positions as well as the overall GDP spending economy. It just seems like it is not a good way to go about it. Yet we're seeing so many members of the right promote people not getting college educations. So I guess without giving away a kind of mm-hmm. The base of after the ivory tower falls, how do we fix it?
1: Um, Well, you know, again, I think turning the battleship around means having that debate that we didn't have, you know, about making college a public good. You know, um, uh, as you were talking, I was going to mention what happened in my own state of Pennsylvania, which is. Uh, in many states, the same thing happened. Um, taxpayers used to fund 75% of our public university system. If you go back to like the mid to late 1980s, today that number is 25%, and and that that huge swing is made up for in tuition. And you know, in tuition, you, you know, even with you know the, the the you know loans and and the small amounts of Pell grants that are given out to students, uh, you know, an average. Middle-class kids' family is still being asked to contribute maybe ten to twenty thousand dollars a year, uh, you know, towards a public education. You know, in these states where often the constitution says, you know, higher education should be provided to, to all citizens, and uh, you know, instead instead we've imposed this privatized racket so so we need to have a debate about I think how we can not just not just forgive loans although I applaud Biden's for, uh, loan forgiveness I think it was you know the, the debt cancellation I think was absolutely the right thing to do but you know we're going to have a new debt crisis if we don't do something going forward and so uh, you know how do we find the revenue streams that can make college a public good you know do we we look at kind of radical measures like like the wealth tax that senator elizabeth warren's proposed or taxes on wall street transactions which was except bernie sanders original proposal um, you know um, you know can we do that and and the and the other thing that's important is can we broaden our definition of higher education because you know we shouldn't just even if we can make public universities free, which I think we should, you know, we should also have free trade schools, free apprenticeships. Uh, you know, I write a chapter in the book about uh, the idea of a universal gap year for 18-year-olds uh, that would help them on a career path. With you know, the government enlisting kids from different backgrounds, from red states and blue states, to get together on public service projects. Uh, uh, I think it would it would kill several problems with, you know, one stone, you know, you'd be doing something, I think, to promote a little bit of national unity and a sense of purpose, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Um, and so so there are things we can do, but the first thing we need to do is realize how much higher education is driving this divide in America and put put it on the front burner as a national problem.
0: Yes, that is a very, very powerful conclusion. It's one I definitely support, and I know everybody out there wants to get their hands on a copy of your book. And can you tell them so, where they can do that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, go to your local bookstore, independent bookstore, support them, or you know your major, your major big time retailers carry it too. And you can, you can also get the audio book on Audible or download it on your Kindle. There's, there's lots of ways to read the book, and I, I hope you will because I hope it's going to start a national conversation about higher education.
0: So do I, that is after the ivory tower falls, how college broke the American dream and blew up our politics and how to fix it. Thank you so much for joining us, Will Bunch.
1: Thanks, Adrian, thanks for having me on.
0: Welcome back to the conversation. It's Adrienne Lawrence. And this time I have a senior correspondent for Insider. That's Aki Ito. Thanks for joining us, Aki.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, so I know there's been a lot of talk on social media right now, also the Wall Street Journal using this term quiet quitting as a phenomenon really to explain how people are unwilling to do more than they're supposed to do at work. Yet, I think back in the day, I would say what earlier this year, maybe May, it almost seems like you wrote a full article on this before the term was coined. You know, Am I wrong in this?
2: Yeah, so when I started hearing the term quiet quitting um, and what it actually describes, I thought it sounded pretty familiar too. Um, it turned out that my story had actually inspired the meme on um, TikTok. There was a career coach named Brian Creeley who was riffing on my story, and he came up with the term quiet quit. Uh, and from there, it just kind of took off and became this viral sensation. Yeah, for real. Because it's like, I,
0: I, I know for the last few weeks, I get the Wall Street Journal. And then I see your story in the great rethink of the pandemic. Millions of Americans have essentially resolved to make work less central in their lives. That's something that you said and you wrote in your article. And I'm like, this is the originator as far as I'm concerned of quiet quitting.
2: Well, it's not every day that as a reporter you get to kind of kickstart this national conversation. So it's been very exciting to you know, watch everybody debate this. Absolutely, and I'm so glad to be able to
0: have this conversation with you um, because I know you put in the work and you identify the issue. And so when it really comes to this issue of people making work less central to their lives, how is it playing out? Because I know we are mm, a little bit out of the whole quarantine pandemic phase that we were in back in 2020 that really made people rethink their interactions with their workplace. And so are you still seeing this continue to play out with people decentralizing work when it comes to their lives?
2: i really do think we're continuing to see this i think you're exactly right that in 2020 people had this realization that they want to make work less central in their lives um, but that was kind of the first step you know that was the thing that killed hustle culture um, what i wanted to figure out was what were people doing with that resolution to actually work less um, which is where my story came in i interviewed all these people who are working a lot less than they used to some you know maybe they were going from 60 hours a week to 40 hours a a week, which is exactly the amount you're supposed to work, but some were cutting it down even further to 30 or, you know, 10 or 5 hours a week. Um so it's really interesting people experimenting with this whole new way of working that they hadn't been experimenting with before and seeing if they had success with that.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a powerful thing, Uh, at least from my experience with the pandemic. I think that whole shift of having people recognize that uh, there are things really important in life and keeping your own life, making sure you're healthy and safe and your loved ones are spending time with them. I think people really kind of maybe had a realization of their own mortality. And then they realized that why should I invest so much time and energy in somebody who won't even give me two weeks before they fire me. And so I I really think it's a very healthy and a good thing of people seeking more out of their lives. Do you think that this shift is something that is going to really change the fabric of our workforce? Or do you think that this is kind of just a, a little blurb on the a few years back in the early mid 2000s?
2: asked me that question even uh, a year and a half ago, um, relatively early in the pandemic, I think I would have said, I think I would have been more cynical. I think I would have said this is just a temporary pandemic thing. People are gonna forget about this and go back to normal. But I think the fact that we're having this big conversation about quiet quitting right now. um, Earlier uh, last year, we were talking about anti-work, the viral Reddit subreddit. We were talking about the great resignation. People wanna keep talking about how to work differently, which is another way of talking about how to live differently. And I think that really goes to show that people are, are eager to kind of learn what they uh, learned during the pandemic in this permanent way and, and try to find a new way forward. Absolutely, and I think it's a really powerful thing and an important thing.
0: Uh, Cuz something we did learn definitely uh, during that time of quarantine around the start of the pandemic with the murder of George Floyd and whatnot, is that we don't have to take it that nobody has to endure this feeling of being oppressed. That your job is not necessarily going to be there for you. But hopefully your loved ones or the life you've built will be there for you. Uh, it feels like almost a model that a lot of the European countries have invested in, in terms of identifying who they are as people, as being individuals and less as being employees. And also one thing that I seem to notice is definitely the upshot of this pandemic and part of this whole revolutionary change in workforce is a rise in unionization. Are you seeing that as well?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of this broader conversation that we're having right now, um, it's really about the relationship between the employer and the employee. Before, you know, as the employee, we were willing to give everything to our employer. That's no longer the case anymore. Um, that's why people have been so willing to switch jobs, you know, to get a, a better title or maybe, you know, get a bigger raise. Um, they've also been willing to unionize to, to you know, be able to have a voice in their workplace. So I think all of these trends point to this this central trend that we're seeing, which is that the employer employee relationship is changing. The employee actually wants to kind of take back more of the power that they had previously given to the employer. Yeah, and
0: also I would actually argue that this is also a culmination of the rise in social media, where everybody has a voice and can be vocal. And when we have a lot of employers out there claiming to respect workers to treat them right, No, we had Me Too, people speaking up about what was going on in their workplace and in their professional lives, as well as their personal lives. And then we had the things during the pandemic where people are speaking up, uh, people coming out against companies who are still portraying things that are oppressive to black people. For example, with Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben and so on and so forth. You have a reckoning and accountability with the, uh, the leaders of our capitalistic front, these businesses. And so it definitely seems that people are continuing to push in that direction. Because they're recognizing their worth.
2: I think that's exactly right. And uh, for example, Quiet Quitting is a TikTok meme. It was trending on Twitter for months before it reached the mainstream, uh, you know, in the Wall Street Journal, for example. Um, So, yeah, definitely social media is a huge force.
0: Yeah, without a doubt and and I think it's, it's such a powerful thing because it does give individuals their own megaphone and their own microphone to do with it as they please. To speak about things that are going on behind closed doors at companies to push back to show that your whole DEI diversity, equity and inclusion mantra is not how you're actually practicing. Um, so I think a lot of companies realize that they are going to be held accountable, that they can't continue to use and abuse people. But they actually have to Start respecting workers, Uh, but at the same time, I'm wondering how could this end up playing out. Do you think it could possibly shift back in terms of the pendulum, or do you think this is something that is truly just
2: uh, it is enlightening and it
0: will move forward to shape our future?
2: Well, I think the interesting thing is we are starting to see some signs of a slowdown in the job market. So, if we were to get into a recession, for example the employer-employee dynamic could really change um, in a way that's not favorable to employees anymore. That said, uh, once again, the fact that we're having these really big conversations about how to work differently, how to live differently, um, I think that's a sign that people want this to be an enduring phenomenon. They want something permanent to come out of this. And as long as there's that collective will, I think I'm I'm hopeful, certainly, that we'll see real change um, endure in the years ahead. Yeah, and I think there needs to be change uh, overall for
0: the betterment of our our entire GDP, how we do business uh, burning through workers is not the way in which that we will continue to advance the United States. Cuz it definitely seems to be somewhat stagnant in part because of capitalistic greed. Um, and so we're gonna have to see how that plays out. But in terms of what you're working on for Insider, uh, you wanna give us a hint about anything coming down the pike?
2: Uh, well certainly i'm continuing to follow this quiet quitting phenomenon i'm just so interested in how people are responding to this you know first came the the story about it then came the backlash now there's the backlash against the backlash uh, i just think it's so exciting that people are debating this in in a way that uh is is fundamental and very deep Um, so i'll certainly continue to report on that Um, i'm I'm also really interested in the where the economy is going in the months ahead um, if we're going to head into a recession Um, inflation just so many exciting things going on right now
0: absolutely it definitely seems like we are in a place where we're trying to figure out Where we are going as a nation, particularly when it comes to businesses, capital and whatnot. And I know with the midterms coming up, I'm sure there is a lot of buzz about that and potential change, are you hearing that?
2: Yeah, I think um, the, the midterms will certainly play a huge role in this. Um, it, we'll, we'll see if you know young voters, young democratic voters will rise up and really start to press for change in a way that's systematic in a way that uh, leads to real legislation. Um, certainly we can talk about this all we want on, on YouTube and on you know social media and whatnot. Uh, but it's another thing to actually get real laws that will stay there forever.
0: Absolutely, yep, and definitely listening to the people, seeing where they wanna go. Uh, Cuz as we know right now, given the reversal of Roe v Wade, there are a lot of women signing up, uh, registering to vote. And I know they're gonna make their voices known by choosing, hopefully, members of uh parties that will reflect their choices and hopefully with that will come some kind of significant meaningful change across the board. I think we could all use it. And so for those out there who want to follow you and follow your work,
2: where can they go? Sure, they can go to businessinsider.com. They can also follow me on Twitter, my handles at Akiito7. Yeah, I think those are the two ways to follow my stories. Excellent, thank you so much for joining us and
0: thank you for your work. That's Aki Ito, senior correspondent for Insider. Thanks for having me.